Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews will be in chapter 9 today, verses 1 through 14. Uh, this work of preaching isn't just my work, it's, it's your work, it's an investment of ours together, you in listening, me in, in preaching. And our church has been invested for years in strengthening other preachers in our region for the work of teaching and preaching. As I have and other of our pastors have benefited from the investment of other churches, this next week we're going to be hosting a preaching workshop for about 60-plus area preachers and teachers. So you can be in prayer for that. Our purpose in hosting that workshop is that uh, preachers would be strengthened in their competency and in their confidence in handling the Word of God. And I will confess that I need help uh, in my competency, and I need encouragement to be confident that this is, this is an important work. First Timothy 4 says, Practice these things, this kind of thing we're doing here, and immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress helping uh, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save yourself and your hearers. And this is what we pray God will strengthen preachers for. Now next week, as is our tradition, when we do this every week, we host this workshop, we do a pulpit swap with Brad Baum from Emmanuel Bible Church. So that's good news for you. It's bad news for me, because I won't get to be here. But Brad Baum, a preacher that we sent out about 15 years ago to plant a church in Malden, uh, will be here to preach for us. And then the week following, just giving you a heads up about where we're going, uh, Abe Stratton will preach for us. That won't be his last sermon among us, no doubt, but at least for the time being, before we send them out at the end of February. A little more we'll share about that this afternoon. Now it's time for us to return to our study in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. I'll read verses 1 through 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second section only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. 
But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, but not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Well, this book, the Bible, is a book concerned with you and I being close with God. You think of even the first pages uh, where Adam and Eve were in the garden and the Lord walked among them and spoke with them. What was that like? I don't know. But it was close fellowship with the living God. And there was nothing between them. There was no hesitation. Of course, the fall came when Adam and Eve supposed that God was being stingy and holding something back and doubted his goodness. They believed the lie of a serpent who twisted God's own words. Uh, and they chose to eat, eat from the fruit of the knowledge, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were commanded against doing so pain of death, and death entered the world, and we live in a world under the curse of sin and death. That's where we are right now. And the great project of humanity is to find its way back to God. Not everyone knows who that God is or has the right idea about that God, but for humanity to get right, as we'd put it, to be close with God. Even think of the Psalms, and you don't need to turn there. But in Psalm chapter 16, we think of how the psalmist speaks about the Lord. Preserve me, O oh God, in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup, and you hold my lot. And I've set you always before me, because he is in my right hand, I shall not be shaken. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence, there's closeness, the presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, Psalm 15, just before it, asks that important question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who can dwell on your holy hill? Like, who can get in with you? Who can be truly close with you? Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And the worst thing in the world is to feel far from God. And I guess it's a good thing at least to know that's the problem when that's the problem. But who can dwell with God? How can we get in with him? How can we know fellowship with God of the sort that we were made to know? Maybe a question for you to begin here. What is keeping you from closeness with God? You personally, what's keeping you from closeness with God? This book of Hebrews is concerned with this very theme, as the whole Bible is, that command on refrain, draw near to God. 
draw near. And remember the warning, not to drift away. Pay attention to Christ and your great salvation lest you drift away. Or rather, draw near. So whatever else may confuse us on first reading in this book, let us remember what this book is for. It is that we might be close with God. We might draw near to Him and not drift away from Him. What's, what's keeping you from closeness with God? Maybe you would say it's, it's busyness since I have so much going on. Or maybe, maybe it's I don't know the Bible well enough. I wish that I knew the Bible better. need to get around to that. Maybe it's some kind of trial is perplexing you and flustering you and throwing you into confusion about God's intentions. Or maybe it's a particular sin. And there are sermons for each of these themes for another day. But there is an answer in our text that maybe we wouldn't have offered up ourselves as the, the thing keeping us from closeness with God. And yet, it seems to dominate the imagination and, and mind and argument of the author of Hebrews. Remember, and we're in the second movement of two movements in the main body of the book. In that first movement, the author argued that Jesus is a high priest in the heavens at the Father's right hand. He is that king seated and throned and interceding. And now in this second movement, we're considering the offering that that priest brings because it matters. It doesn't just matter that he's there. If he's going to be there and that's good for us, he will have to have brought an offering that is good for us, that gets us in with God as well. And look at me in verse 9. According to this arrangement, speaking of the Old Covenant, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In verse 14, by way of contrast, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So I take it that this matter of conscience is a matter of focus for our author, and he lays a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New and its effect on our conscience. Now, what is the conscience? Well, it's a human thing. Animals don't have this. It is a thing that we have as those made in God's image. It's, it's that little voice, little box inside you. It's the, the part about you that, that discerns and speaks about what is right and what is wrong. It's your moral compass, you can call this, and it's a gift. It's meant to help us and to guide us. But in sin, because of sin, our compass, our conscience is often corrupted, and it's important to acknowledge the possibility of corrupt conscience. In fact, all of ours are corrupt to some extent, some to a greater and lesser degree. Um, A conscience can be a weak conscience for the Christian, that, that is triggered by the wrong things, and you accuse yourself of being wrong when God hasn't said you're wrong. Listening to this, eating this, going there. And, and so it's important to recalibrate our conscience. Now, as long as your conscience is yelling, no, you shouldn't violate it, but it's also important to work over the long term to train your conscience to match the scriptures. And we consider each other around here and in matters of conscience, and yet we work so that we are strong and not weak in conscience. And you can also have a seared conscience, and this is where 
your conscience doesn't alert you to something that is wrong when it should because you've ignored it for so long, sinned in a particular way so often that it no longer even feels bad. And so that sin is really easy. And then the next sin that's a little worse is a little easier and the alarms go off. But then you get used to that. And so like your conscience is seared. It doesn't feel anymore. It doesn't work anymore. That's a corruption of the conscience. Well, here in this passage, we're pondering what he means by this. According to this arrangement, verse 9, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience. Perfect the conscience. Presumably, by implication, we have an imperfect conscience. Or verse 14, that Jesus was offered without blemish to purify our conscience from dead works. A few verses before, he speaks of those who were defiled, which is why they have an imperfect conscience. And even on the next page, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 19 and following, which is where these next couple sermons are going to dump off. It's all leading here. We read this wonderful exhortation, and we're putting in the work right now over a few weeks to get to this. But therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, well, that's good news. That's coming by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, okay, what? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. An evil conscience. I think he's talking about the same same thing here. What is an evil conscience, a defiled conscience, an imperfect and impure conscience? Well, I think it could be one of two things, and it's probably both. And sometimes when I think that, I'm kind of waiting for a commentator to say that for me. Um, You know, one might say one, and one might say the other, or something else. And then I turned to uh, Calvin this week, and he said, the sprinkling of the heart from an evil conscience takes place either, oh, that's good, when we are, by obtaining pardon, deemed pure before God, Or when the heart cleansed from all corrupt affections is not stimulated by the goads of the flesh. In other words, it's either when you're forgiven, so not guilty anymore, or it's when your conscience has been transformed so that it feels the right things. It's alive to God. You have a new heart. Which is it? Then he says, I'm disposed to include both of them. And he moves on. I'm disposed to include both of them. We've read about the new covenant work last week, which gives us a new heart. And part of the good news of the gospel and the coming of Jesus is that he makes us new. And part of the good news is that he forgives our sins completely and he takes them all away. And I have to believe that both are going on here in this word about a perfected conscience or a purified conscience. There are three things that our conscience will, three problems our conscience will bring to our attention on any given day. Um, Our past sins that we've committed, 
Some of us have committed some pretty terrible sins. We've, we've said some pretty terrible things. We've done some pretty terrible things. We've certainly thought terrible things. Murder, perhaps affairs, abortion, which we may as well call feticide. It's an act of cruelty against the unborn, and some of us are, have committed such a sin. All kinds of things. Maybe a marriage ended and and there was sin in both parties, but there are things that we said that they haven't forgotten and that we'll never forget that we said. And we, we, don't, we don't forget these things. Our conscience, our conscience reminds us of our past sins. And our conscience reminds us of our present sins, the sins we committed this morning and this week and all that. And our conscience also alerts us to the fact that we live in an evil age and we're in contact with wickedness and walking down the hall in the malls and scrolling through a news feed. Um, We're around perversions and debauchery, it seems, even without wanting to be. And then deep down, we kind of want to be. We thank God that we aren't there, but then maybe we clicked and we thought that thought So present sin, past sin, our presence in an evil age in contact with so much corruption, we just don't feel like we belong in the presence of God. And on the one hand, we're kind of on to something. There's a reason why in the Old Covenant, all those rituals were required. God was teaching us through that tent and its system that he is holy And he is life in itself. And to the extent that we are sinful and have come in contact with death, even touching a dead animal would make you unclean, couldn't be in the tabernacle. This this whole sprinkling of ashes, what the heifer was, you'd bring this animal and they'd kill it and then they'd burn it and the ashes they'd save for when you needed them later. And then you can go up there and say, hey, I touched the dead body. They'd mix the ashes with water and sprinkle some on the altar and sprinkle some on you and forget exactly how it went, but you get the idea. This animal died, its ashes are sprinkled, mixed, and it goes about cleansing the place of God's presence in you so that you can be right with God. And it's not that you sinned in touching something that was dead, it's that God is life in himself. And he's teaching us that good thing, death isn't near him. And, and he is not a God of death. We live in the realm of death. And he's about purifying us for his presence. Charles Spurgeon spoke about this past, present, and evil age that plagues us and our conscience brings these problems to our attention. Well, what is the answer for them? Because we really do have past sins, and we really do sin today, and we really are in an evil age. We really do bump up against death and darkness and, and sin and evil. Well, maybe you're answering this in any number of ways. Justifying yourself, you know, telling yourself you're really good, actually, and why this person is bad, and you're good. And the five reasons why I'm good. And they said that to me this week. But they don't know what they're talking about. And yeah, it's kind of true, but these other things are true and they don't know that. I'm good. Maybe you're justifying yourself. Maybe you're giving yourself away. 
So you're involved in charities and you're involved in some nonprofit work and you're tutoring for free or something. And you, you talk about that with other people a lot. It's kind of like a badge. You listen to yourself talk and you'll find out how you might be answering this problem of an evil conscience. Are you, are you quick to talk about how you're, you're giving yourself to other people and the, things, the good things that you're, that you're doing? Maybe keep them up, but beware about the reason for them. Maybe you're about improving yourself, working really hard to be a better, a better person. You have this evil conscience that's accusing you of wrong and condemning you to hell. It's tormenting you, but you're working really hard to be a better, a better person. Or maybe you're just being yourself, expressing yourself. That's the, new, that's the new religious code, by the way. It's to be yourself and express yourself. Or as we used to say, be your authentic self. Be an authentic person. That language of authenticity has given birth now to the language of self-expression, being yourself. And whatever comes out of you is good because it is you. And some are even trying to bend the whole world to approve of what is inside them. And maybe that's you. There are things inside you that you desire and want, and you're saying, yeah, that's me, and that's who I am, and you have to approve of that. It's good because it's, it's me. Or maybe it's not your thing, expressing yourself. Maybe it's punishing yourself, harming yourself, cutting yourself. You don't like yourself. This evil conscience is accusing you. Satan is such a crafty, evil enemy. That some he makes to feel great about who they are in their sin. And some he makes to hate themselves and hurt themselves. Or maybe it's cleaning yourself up and going to church. Coming to church is an act of righteousness to make you feel better about who you are. Well, I'm not sure how you are answering that problem. I suppose there are many different ways in this room that we are answering the problem of our evil conscience, that part of us that says you're wrong and you know it and condemns us, and tortures us. John Flavel, conscience, which should have been the sinner's curb here on earth, becomes the sinner's whip that will lash his soul in hell. That which was the seat and center of all guilt now becomes the seat and center of all torment. And we will do anything to get out from under the accusation of an evil conscience. Well, this passage that we're reading today, it's all about this. And it's got good news for us on this topic. Well, let's begin where the passage begins with a refresher on the old tent, how it worked, and why it didn't. Verses 1 through, 1 through 10. Of course, we get this. It's bizarre if you're new to Scripture, and maybe bizarre if you're not that new to Scripture. A little walk through this ancient tent, tabernacle, that was set up, given to Moses to set up for the people, by which they would get to know God and get in with God and be able to relate with God. God would come down and live among his people in a tent, a symbolic tent, 
Although he was actually really present in a real, in a real, real way. Well, how did it work? Well, let's examine the layout of the space. We have, we have two sections. There's a first section and there is a second section. That first section was called the holy place. The section, second section, the inner section, was called the most holy place. That's how we translate it. It's called the holies of holies. It's a superlative. It's like a way of saying infinitely holy. So you have the holy place, that place that is set apart for God. But there's a place that's even more set apart for God than that. It's that part that's set apart, set apart for God. It's the holies of holies, the very inner place. A first section in this tent and a second section in this tent. That's the layout of the space. The layout of the furnishings. You think in your own home, you can kind of spot what kind of a room you're in. Well, you know your own home. You walk into another home and you know what room it is based on the furnishings and what they're doing there. And if you have a a sink and a garbage disposal or whatever else is in the the, the kitchen, the fridge is in the kitchen, uh, then you know you're in the kitchen. That's for making and storing and doing things with food. If you're in the family room, typically going to be a couch and maybe a TV on the wall if you're like us. Um, after five years of marriage, we didn't have a TV at first. I was really against it, and then we got one, and we try to unplug the Apple TV every now and then so it's not on all the time. You get it. The family room, it might have a TV on it. Just don't let it suck the family out of family. It can do that, can't it? You know, the family room, um, you've got uh, the laundry room. You have some machines in there that do some things. Uh, bedroom's going to have... A bedroom's going to have some beds in it and some dressers in it for storing clothes. These rooms make sense. They've got furniture that, that tells you what goes on in there, and the furniture has a purpose. Well, same thing in here. This tent had two spaces, and in that first space, there were some furnishings. And we'll look at the layout of those. There was, in the first section, there was a lamp stand, that lamp stand resembling that tree of life from, from the creation story. A tree of life representing God's life among his people. The little lights in the heavens representing his glorious presence. And here and the, the lights on this lampstand reminiscent of those heavenly orbs put in the sky. And, and the tree of life in the garden. That God is with his people and he is life and he is light. And then you've got this table with the bread of the presence. And that table is a is, a, is an indication that God intends to meet with us and eat with us and be with us and be in fellowship with us. Those are two great pieces of furniture for that first section. Well, you keep going a little bit, and there's the second section, and there's furnishings in the second section, section as well. In the second section, um, you've got the... Well, let's see here. The set behind the second curtain, verse 3, called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense, where incense would be burned and go up to the Lord as a pleasing aroma. And then you'd have the Ark of the, the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was covered on all sides with gold. And there was an urn in there which held the manna, which was a reminder of the provision, of miraculous provision of God for his people in the wilderness. He would take care of them. And Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant where he gave them his law and his word that they might love him and and love their neighbor, and reflect his glory, and be his redeemed people, his people, and that he would be their, their God. 
And above it were the cherubim of glory, these angels that would overshadow this mercy seat, this mercy seat where blood would be sprinkled. Isn't it great that in that most holy place, all the way into the presence of God, we find the last item on the list is called mercy. It's a mercy seat. And God is a merciful God. That's why he comes to us at all. You have the layout of the space, the layout of the furnishings. You have the layout of the calendar. In that first section, you've got priests that go in there all the time, and they're always doing work for the people, and they're sacrificing things and doing things with blood and burning things and keeping, keeping the regulations and the washings. And in the inner place, well, only, only, keyword, only the high priest went in there and once a year. But someone did get to go in there which is nice, but it's not quite enough, as we'll see. There's this neat comment right here in verse 5. Love this comment. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. And I chuckle because it kind of feels like he was just talking in detail. But I think there's obviously a lot more detail. He's just letting us know, all right, I'll stop there. And it's also a, a comment he makes as a way of saying, let me get to the point of it all now which is just a reminder that it's possible in reading our Bibles to miss the point. It's possible in reading our Bibles to get lost in the details. We can be glad for the details. The details are in the text. But it's possible to miss the point of the details and be encouraged when you're lost in the details. There is a point, and the point of the details is the point. Don't miss the point. Listen for the point. And our author here is going to help us with that. Well, what is the point? Where is all this going? Well, even so far, we've learned some things about our God, that our God is a God who seeks to dwell with us. He intends to be approached by us. Uh, after we fell into sin, he didn't leave off us. He didn't leave us for dead, although death is the curse we're under. He came to us and he pursued us and he seeks to bless us, and he means to be approached. We also see here that, that God has a particular way in which he will be approached. He's particular about it. It's on his terms that we get to be together. And a third thing we learned from this so far is that those terms by which we can get together with God regulations and blood and this tent and the, the layers and all this, teach us about the holiness of God and about our sinfulness. So there's a holy place and there's a most holy place. And why do we have to go in regularly through a priest to this first place? Well, it's because we regularly sin and we regularly need representation before God and, and we live in the realm of death. And, and then why do we need a high priest to go into the most holy place once a year? Well, in order to not just sacrifice for his own sins, but for our sins, and cancel them out once a year. But then why only once a year? Well, because uh, God's too holy. And, and why does he have to keep going in? Well, because we're going to accumulate plenty of sin in the 12 months that are between years. So we learn at least that much, that God desires to be and intends to be approached by us, that he's particular about how that happens. And and that he is holy and we are sinful. But there is also a point made indirectly in all of these details. 
indirectly. You even look at here in verse 8. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open. That's interesting. Is it that the Holy Spirit explicitly wrote these things in the Old Testament? Well, there are indications of various kinds. I think in this case, there is an indication embedded in the system itself that, the, that it is not enough. That it is inadequate. And so we've said we're talking about the tent and how it worked. We've talked about that and why it didn't, as in why it didn't work. What are some of the hints and indications that it actually doesn't, doesn't do the job of getting us back all the way in with God? Well, it's limited in its effectiveness. That's why priests are regularly into that first section with sacrifices for us. It's limited in its, the access that it allows. That's why he emphasizes that it is only the high priest once a year, verse 7, but into the second section, only the high priest goes. And that but once a year. And then it's limited in its, in its cleansing. Look at verse 10. But the sacrifices and the washings and whatnot deal only with food and things deal with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for what? For the body imposed until the time of reformation. It's this interesting parenthetical statement here in verse 9. The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. As long as the first section is still standing, parentheses, which is symbolic for the present age. In other words, the tent had two sections. The inner section was, that's where you really meet with God. And one guy goes in there once a year to be close with God. But there's this other section, other priests can go in and out of there on a regular basis. The whole fact of two sections is an indication, albeit indirectly, but clearly, that this tent is not going to be the final word here. This is not, this doesn't really get it done. The first section, while it stands, while the tent is still in operation, verse 9, first section, which is symbolic for the present age. I take that to mean that age, before the coming of Christ. It it sort of sums everything up. Close enough to God, but not close enough. Not really in. God has come to us. He's pursued us. He's given us a way to, to come to him through sacrifices and offerings and whatnot. He's given us priests. But as long as there's a first section and we're not all into the second section, this this whole system is not going to be the final word. And I take it that the Holy Spirit in the design of the tabernacle was making such an indication that it was symbolic of the present age and that a future time would come. Verse 10, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. See, the scriptures would speak about a day when all would be right and there would be a new creation and and there were expectations of perfect fellowship with God. Well, there would have to be this time of reformation or time of restoration, a new creation to come. But these washings and things that have to do with the body externally, they weren't going to do it. 
These limit, limited nature, limited effectiveness of the system, the limited access it provided, and the limited cleansing, cleansing that was external, it had to do with the body. We have bigger problems than, our, than the fact that we touched a dead body. We, we ourselves are guilty of dead works, he'll talk about here. Our sins and even the good things we do with bad motives, our, the good things we do to justify ourselves, to improve ourselves, as if to say to God, see how good I am. I'm really good, aren't I? Dead works. No, we have a problem that's deeper than the outside. We have a problem that's all the way inside, and we need an answer for our inside problem. But thankfully, that present age back then gives way to the time of restoration, of reformation. And so now we move to the second part of our text, verse 11 through 14. The surprising path and power and purpose, excuse me, of a purified conscience. And we have this word but here, but when Christ, oh, that's always an indication that something good is coming. By way of contrast, this was deficient and there were problems, but... But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then to the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not a little model, the real thing, he entered once, and all, once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing eternal redemption, better in every way. If this whole former detailed system with all of its rituals, wow, that would really, you would really feel spiritual and godly and, and religious performing all of those. And, and they had to obey God in doing them. The problem for this church that this author is writing to is they're vulnerable to preferring that old system of externals. It was right and proper in that old covenant age. But they actually kind of maybe liked the signs and the smells and the bells and the movement and the garb and the tent and the urn and the objects and the furniture and you could see it with your eyes and it wouldn't get you in trouble so much like, I don't know, swearing allegiance to a crucified man and saying he raised from the dead. You can't see him. We could see that. And so all of us are tempted to make to, to concoct and collect externals and to add externals onto our Christianity and our faith in Jesus so that we might measure ourselves and be measured by other people and present ourselves as meeting requirements. Now we have to be so careful about drifting away from Jesus by fixing our eyes on ourselves. It's the great danger. And this author is fixing our eyes instead on Jesus, our invisible but ever-present and active, interceding, reigning king who is seated free, paid for all of our sins. His work, his new covenant work, it's way better than whatever you cook up on your own, whatever you gave yourself to before you turned to Jesus, and it's certainly better even than what God gave the people in the Old Testament that these folks are tempted to slide back into. So a little bit on the path. The path to a purified conscience. Well, friends, it is not through justifying yourself or giving yourself to people or expressing yourself or punishing yourself or even cleaning yourself up where you still have sin. The sins you committed in the past, they're still there. And no matter how much good you do, your conscience will torment you about those things, will accuse you of those things. 
will condemn you on account of those things. Sometimes the conscience is wrong in its accusations, but sometimes it's right, and apart from the blood of Christ, we really are condemned. The path isn't through any of those. Well, what is the path? The path is through, it's through blood. Blood. Now, who would have thought that the answer to your guilty conscience and your evil conscience that keeps you from closeness with God isn't all these other things which seem so productive, but it's just blood. Jesus' blood. Better than the blood of animals that represents you. Now, Jesus was a man so he could represent you his life given for yours. He was more than that. He offered himself up by the eternal spirit, verse 14. Take that to be a reference to his own divine nature. Offered up by the spirit. He was more than just a man, but he was divine and so he could be received. But even more, he was without blemish. He offered himself up, verse 14, without blemish to God. So we need a representative, a high priest who is a man, who, who is divine, who offers a, himself as a perfect sacrifice. And, and so it's, it's not that we can say we have a clear conscience before God, that I can say that about myself or, or give you the assurance of a clear conscience because you didn't sin in the past, because that's not true that happened, because it's not true what you did this morning. It's because Jesus, by his blood, died for that sin in order that you might come to God with a clear conscience. That's how much God wants you to freely come to him. You feel guilty for your sin? You're not on to nothing. Let that sense of guilt drive you to the one who took your guilt. Give it to him. Because God wants worshipers. He wants servants who love him and give themselves to him. Which leads us to the purpose of a purified conscience. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who is through the eternal priest, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works. All those sins and good things you did for yourself. Purify our conscience for what? To serve the living God. To serve. And that's priestly language. It's the kind of stuff the priests did when they served God in the tent. Even look at the theme here, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for what? For worship. In verse 9, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Worship, the uninhibited giving of oneself wholly to, not a charity, not to your family in the first place, but to your Lord and maker and redeemer. The God of heaven, you were made to give yourself to him. And you are always better for giving all of yourself in worship to the living God. And you can do it because God has set out through the blood of his son, through Jesus, who offered himself not in an earthly tent, come on, but in a heavenly tent, who offers himself not once a year, because he's got to keep coming back and renewing his sacrifice, but once for all, because it was good enough. 
And not in order to cleanse us of external blemishes, but in order to cleanse your conscience all the way down. To purify your conscience so that it would feel the right things and alert you the right way, be alive to God. But also, and at the very least, to take all your guilt away so that you might then serve the living God. So the purpose of God purging our sin by the blood of his son is not so that we can go about then happily sinning with a clear conscience. And by the way, he's not worried about you doing that if you really are cleansed of your sin. He is preaching the cleansing of your conscience unto a heart that will give itself in worship to the living God. No, it's not so that we can go on happily sinning with a clear conscience. And he doesn't purify our consciences and cleanse us by the blood of Jesus. Even so that we could just go on with life being free from feeling guilty. So that we could feel good and feel good about ourselves. And have a new story to tell ourselves. That, so we aren't so hard on ourselves. And we aren't so bothered by the things that we've done. No, his purpose is far greater than you feeling better about yourself today. It is about you drawing near to God without anything between you and God so that you might worship him with a full heart and serve him with your whole life. So let us pray for help to do just that. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for this lofty passage of scripture. Father, I pray for those who are lost among us, who know it, who came with a guilty conscience burdened by their guilt and they've never had hope. Or others who know they have hope but they keep accusing themselves and condemning themselves. I pray that those that are truly lost would find a clear conscience through the blood of Jesus, a real answer to the problem within us. I pray for those of us who know Jesus, that you would give us the great assurance of our faith, the great assurance that we are yours, that great assurance that comes because our consciences, our evil consciences have been sprinkled clean so that we do not come defending ourselves or proving ourselves or harming ourselves, but we come freely as those accepted by you, for you have done all that is necessary for us to come. So let us not think that we can add anything to Jesus' blood, but Father, cast ourselves wholly on your mercy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.